You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Dakota back with us playing guitar today. Dakota, thank you. Good to see you and your wife. And I hope all of you had a good Christmas uh, with your families and and so on. And uh, we carry on. It's hard to believe that it's the day after Christmas already. So there you go. <clears throat> I uh, want to try and encourage us today in the in the same realm that we've been talking about, just uh, as the guys are back from working down south and uh, the uh, images in their own mind of what took place. And, uh, of course, the the question arises for everyone, uh, where is God when things go wrong? Where is God when there's tragedy? Where is God when you thought a normal day was going to take place and then suddenly a wall of storm comes through and you lose everything? Might, might even lose a loved one's life. Uh, so all of us are uh, aware of these things. Sometimes some of us have gone through life without any tragedies, and that's amazing. Others of us have had some things like that happen, but certainly as these things come in our lives, we have to sort of pause and reflect and ask ourselves where we're at in the, tr- in the things that we believe in. And uh, what you believe becomes far more critical and crucial when you're faced with something either tough to go through or when you're trying to speak to someone who doesn't know Christ and you need answers, those things that you've memorized and things that you say you believe and stand on. They become far more important when life has critical moments. In our text, as we're going to read the Christmas story, you can join me in Luke 2. I've said, uh, I think I said Wednesday night that in our home growing up, it was read every Christmas by my grandfather until he passed away and Others took the mantle after that. But today, I want, what I want to do is just look at some of the details of this story and transfer some of these things uh, in the sense that God is in the details of this story and he's also in the details of our life today. In fact, if you don't really see that or think that, uh, you're missing something that can really affect and change your life so let's, let's read through, first of all. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This uh, text introduces this uh, 
uh, intertwining, if you will, of various uh, circumstances and prophecies all coming together in the perfect timing of God's uh, sovereign plan. And most of us have been believers long enough that we know that. But I want to just sort of, again, pause, go through some of these things and address uh, what God wants us to take out of this that would show us he's there. He's in the story and he's still in the story uh, even this morning. In fact, uh, as we kind of go through this, just notice that when we read uh, a decree went out, uh, uh, it's it's very modern today to know that many theologians, many critics of the Bible, in fact, want to uh, use this text to uh, sort of tear away at the at the at the uh, reality and truth of God's word, discredit the word and nullify Luke, who is supposed to be a trustworthy historian uh, over in chapter uh, one of Matthew. Uh, sorry, that's not where I want to go. I want to go chapter one of Luke. Uh, in chapter one of Luke, in verse three, Luke is uh, telling this person named Theophilus, uh, as he's writing this gospel, he says, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So here's uh, a, a statement by Luke that putting, putting his reputation on the line by saying the facts I'm giving you are factual. They are true and they're in the right order. So when he uh, writes here in chapter two that a decree went out that uh, from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria automatically there are many who jump on this because Quirinius was uh, noted to be the governor of Syria in AD 6. And, uh, and yet you remember Herod, the one who commands that all the two-year-old and younger are killed because he wants to uh, kill the baby Jesus. That took place around 4 BC. So there's a discrepancy uh, supposedly. And so uh, we know that Luke, I trust that Luke is far more sharp than those who criticize the text and uh, there are things we could say today to try to uh, sort of, uh, you know, try to fix the problem. Many have tried to do that, that there are several senses taken and all of that, which there's no record of that. So saying those things doesn't help. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, uh, just as an, an analogy to this, uh, in 1790, men were sent out on horseback to begin the first U.S. census, which took place took over 18 months to complete. I always think about this because, uh, you know, it doesn't happen in one day. It doesn't even happen in one month. These things are called a census. It takes a long time. And if men were uh, set out on horseback to go to the few colonies that we had, they weren't that far spread apart. And it took them 18 months. And nobody had to travel from, from one town to the next to register to their hometowns. Uh, you kind of look at the story and say, you know, some things probably are missing in the elements that we don't need and they're not there. But certainly the fact that if this decree went out from Caesar Augustus, it would have taken a long time to get the decree out. Secondly, it would have taken a long time to implement the decree. So by the time the reports all came back in A.D. 6, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, it was finished. That doesn't mean that the, the census wasn't taking two or three years to actually take place. We, we just leave that part out. Nobody has a record of that, so we don't say anything. 
The fact is that uh, this is what I believe is true, and by the time this was all finished, yes, maybe in AD 6 that was true, he was, but, uh, but certainly this, this census was taking place, and it took a long time to pull it off, and it, it happened as Luke has told us. Do you believe that? I do. I, I don't doubt Luke. Uh, Luke is uh, one of those who's writing, according to 2 Peter 1.21, he's writing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe he's telling the truth, and he knows what he's talking about. But some have taken a shot at that. Interesting, as we look at the elements here, that you have Caesar Augustus mentioned uh, in this text. Uh, Caesar Augustus is somebody else. We should just pause and think about this because his name was Octavian. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, he was well known for having defeated Antony and Cleopatra in a campaign. Uh, and then also he brought stability to Rome and all the territories around Rome. So he was uh, first the one to take on a title called Augustus, which we have listed here. Augustus, Caesar Augustus. It's a title. It means holy or revered. So that he and those Caesars who followed him were actually considered gods, which I find interesting. And at the time of Luke's writing of this gospel, several Greek cities in Asia Minor had adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, uh, as the first day of the new year, hailing him as Savior. Now, all of that is important for us because, again, when we say God's in the details, he's in the details of this. Because God used Caesar uh, to uh, uh, establish this need for a census at the perfect timing, and God's going to use him and play him in God's uh, performance of pulling all these elements together for his own glory and for his majesty. So uh, he uh, calls for this census. It has an impact on a tiny little village in Nazareth. Uh, these two people, Joseph and Mary, who are uh, engaged in a sense, betrothed, uh, are, are going to set out to go to their hometown, uh, Bethlehem. Their, uh, their, their roots are from there. It's not their hometown, but their roots are there. So they're going to go to uh, the city of David, and make this registry. And all the while, we have to realize that all these things that are happening, which seem very inconvenient, uh, difficult to pull off, Mary's pregnant. Uh, she's, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, got to be uncomfortable in this journey. And Joseph's got a lot of pressure on his shoulders as he uh, takes her with him to go. A lot riding on this. And so they're trusting God completely. And they, I think, are going to learn through the, all these circumstances of the presence of God in their very tough circumstances. And that's the lesson for us today, by the way. So as they go, God is directing their steps. We have to believe that. This Christmas story is all about God directing it. So God has caused Caesar to uh, uh, you know, set this thing in motion. Uh, which sets in motion, obviously, the, uh, just the scriptures themselves that, that come alive when we think about all of this that's taking place. God directs my steps. He directs your steps. Uh, even as we read this, and God's directing them to go, and he's causing all these things to fall in line. This is what God does. And sometimes we don't see it. I don't know that they actually were thinking about the fact God was directing them. I think they were just going through the, uh, the motions of the circumstances they came up, and they were being obedient, doing the right thing. And uh, people, you know, obviously don't always see God in the, in the moment. We see God after we look back. I know Marilyn and I talk about our life. We talk about how we got to where we are today. 
Sometimes we still bring it up and we look back in our life. Sometimes when we're telling someone else our story. Uh, it always goes back to uh, the roots of our life and uh, even the fact of how we met and uh, where we came from and all those things are ingredients. And you say, these are just circumstantial things. And we want to say, no, they're not circumstantial at all. God was in all of the details of our life. And as we look back, we can see it. And the thing of it is, it's very encouraging to realize, yes, God was there and he hasn't changed. So he's still working in our lives. We just don't always see it the way we want to. God's power working through our lives directs our steps. Proverbs 16:9 tells us that. He wants our lives to intersect with his gospel. And that's what's taking place even in this text. And so in John 6, Jesus made the statement that the father draws us. And no one can come to me except the Father draws him. Philippians 2.13, Paul wrote this, For it is God who works in you to both will and to do for his good pleasure. That, that's so important for us to realize that as we trust God and we're praying, we have to realize that God is the one who works in me to want me to will and that I would then do uh, for his good pleasure. That's such a powerful statement which tells me why it's so absolutely necessary for us to pray. Uh, I want to challenge us that if, uh, if you sense maybe that you're not sure if God's working in your life or maybe you feel like you're in a dry time, maybe, maybe you're, uh, I don't know, maybe your devotional time isn't happening or it's dry or you're just, not, you're just not sensing God with you, I want to remind you that that's something we are to pray for. Uh, the word supplication in the Bible, it means to humbly plea. And so I want to just remind us that we should be humbly pleading with God to speak to us, to motivate us, to protect us from the world that will pull us away from him, to trust him in all the circumstances of our life. That's what we do. And that's how we should be praying. And I, I would imagine that these two were praying constantly as they were going on this journey. Uh, so we have some key things here, the census and uh, some statistics, some dates and so on. Uh, we have Augustus, somebody who thinks he's a God uh, giving directions. And here's God behind the scenes saying, well, you think you're a God, but I'm basically telling you that I want the census now. And so God's directing all of these things, even through the ones who stand and say they're the ones who are the authority. No, it's God behind everyone. Do you believe that today? We look at news and we look at politics and we look at the intimidating things going on and it's so easy to lose track that our God is behind all the things happening. He's orchestrating the events of this world and he's moving us as, as we go through this life trusting him. And he's putting all these things in place for his story to unfold. And we need to believe that and trust him and know he has our good in mind as he does this. Verses 4 and 5 come up in the text. Joseph also went up from the house from Galilee to the uh, out of the city of Nazareth. So he has the details here for us uh, into Judea to the city of David, uh, uh, which is called Bethlehem. So we we understand exactly where he's going. Uh, we understand that uh, Bethlehem is, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, we, we said this last time, maybe 80 miles, maybe 90 miles. Uh, so that's the journey they're taking. And it's a it's a serious journey. Uh, we, we just read this at, uh, talking about Joseph, but Mary's also, uh, her background's also through the line of David. Uh, you can trace that in Luke chapter 3, that her journey, her, her whole heritage. So both of them are really heading back to the same kind of uh, roots of their life. Uh, that little chorus that we sing, 
old little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Uh, when we sing that song, it sometimes can seem like, uh, that's cute, it's a nice little song. But we are singing of the most fantastic miracle when you just realize what's happening in the story. And it just makes that song that much more special of this uh, tremendous uh, miracle that's happening, that Mary and Joseph are being moved by what uh, authorities think is their call, and it's God behind the scenes, and the timing and the placement, it's all there. It's all beyond calculation. Fate could never orchestrate a perfect alignment like this. So Micah 5.2 becomes even that much more critical and important to us. Uh, 700 years prior to this story, uh, the prophet Micah uh, speaks about the babe being born in Bethlehem. And for all these things to happen, to make that come to pass, uh, is an amazing, amazing story, isn't it? Uh, years ago, I, I went to a lecture by Josh McDowell. It's before he actually uh, wrote the book, published the book, Evidence Demands a Ver Verdict, I got to hear him speak. It was still a manuscript at that time. And uh, even him speaking about it, and when the book was finally published, of course, I grabbed a copy. And I, I, I like to read some stuff like that, but you know, he cited his, uh, some scientist named Peter Stoner, and you've all read this or heard this quote, uh, that the probability of Jesus fulfilling uh, just eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. And he's going on, you know, and he sort of put it into an analogy. It'd be like, uh, and he said, like, taking one silver dollar, marking it, and then uh, throwing it into a pile of 100 quadrillion silver dollars spread across the state of Texas, two feet deep, mixing it all up, and then finding that coin blindfolded. That was his illustration. I even thought back then, who thinks of these things? I mean, I mean, really, I mean, do you have time to do that? I mean, how do you, how do you really, how do you know it's, it's 100 quadrillion silver dollars? How do you figure that out? I, I don't believe it, but it doesn't make any difference. God doesn't need our ridiculous probabilities. God's word isn't about probabilities. It's not about possibilities. It's about facts. When, when God says he's going to do something, it's not a probability it's going to happen, right? So when you've heard me say he's coming soon, he's coming soon. Uh, when we read this story and, and Luke's giving us this account, we, we read this account and we uh, don't need to question the details as others do because they're trying to disprove a text. I want to believe this text by faith and I believe that what Luke said uh, is factual because he put his line, his reputation on the line to say he did these things properly. And did his homework. So these details pop up and I just see God written all, all over the page. Joseph and Mary uh, had to have been, uh, I think, after the angel had given both of them the storyline, Joseph and Mary had to have been suddenly brought into conversation about their heritage. You see, they would have almost lost the sense of their heritage before this event took place. I got to take you back just to show you in Jeremiah 22. Can I take you back there? Because in Jeremiah 22, <clears throat> we read what they would have known. They would have thought about this. Maybe they hadn't thought about it in some time, but this would have come up in their conversation. 
Because when, uh, you know, when, when uh, they're hearing that through the seed of David, there's going to be one who's going to sit on the throne of God. Uh, he's going to be God, uh, this, this one who's coming, and all the prophecies about that. This had to have popped up in their mind as, a, as an issue. And so uh, while they're traveling, perhaps they talked about this, but let me highlight a couple of things here. Starting in verse 1, or sorry, verse 2 of chapter 22, uh, you hear this statement, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you, who, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Uh, now look down at verse 5, I'm going to jump down. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, he's talking about just obeying him, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house, that's the house of David, shall become a desolation. Over near the end of the chapter, he actually, God actually presents uh, a curse against the line of, of Judah through uh, David, through uh, Solomon. Uh, down in verse 24, he's going to speak to the king existing at this time, Jeconiah. As I live, says the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, verse 26, so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born. And there you shall die. Uh, then he, he asked these rhetorical questions in verse 28. Is this man, uh, Jeconiah or Coniah, same name, a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast uh, into a land which they do not know? Oh, earth, earth, earth. This is God speaking. He wants earth to listen, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this, write this man down as childless a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. It's a curse against the line of David uh, through uh, the line of Solomon, actually. And so this is a curse from Jeconiah on. No king, no, no uh, person in the lineage can ever be king. Now that's important because all the prophecies are about uh, the Messiah coming and being of the line of David, uh, sitting on the throne establishing the throne. What's interesting, even this is God still speaking down in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. Listen to what the Lord says now in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Well, that's interesting. Did God change, is God changing his mind? No, he's not changing his mind. The curse has been established, and the curse will continue. But yet God still makes this promise, and we see this promise uh, in this wonderful story that we're looking at today. How God does this is amazing. And so as we uh, sort of continue uh, in thinking about this, here's what God's doing. Uh, he's uh, establishing for us the understanding that this line, this lineage that we are talking about of, of, uh, from, from David all the way to, uh, uh, to Joseph, the, the father-in-law, if you will, of Jesus, so in Matthew chapter 1, you have uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ uh, through, uh, 
uh, through David and through Solomon and so on. Uh, you'll see uh, in, in verse 6, uh, all these begots, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. In verse 6, and Jesse begot David, and then it changes. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now look down in verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The format has changed to uh, let us know that it's not Joseph who's the actual father. Now over in Luke chapter 3, you have another lineage here. And here's where we see this amazing thing come together because here, as Luke writes, he, uh, he, he gives us this whole lineage of, of, of uh, through, uh, under Mary, really. But you'll see here, it says in verse 23, now, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years old, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. There's been some crit- criticism about this, but uh, Joseph's not the son of Heli. We just read that he's the son of uh, of, 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 of Jacob in the other text. He's the son of uh, Heli. No, uh, they used the, uh, oftentimes in these genealogies, they would use the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the father-in-law, or the, or the, in this case, the son-in-law, and use him as uh, staying sort of in line of who begot so-and-so, and they would do that. And sorry, ladies, but you are often left out of genealogies, but God loves you nonetheless and has fixed that problem. Uh, but, but so we read here, and even when it says, as was supposed the son of, uh, it's another reference to that. But you'll see in verse 31, this is talking about uh, not through the line of Solomon. Uh, this is through uh, the line of Nathan, it says, the son of David, the son of Jesse. Oh, there's, of course, there's another son through Bathsheba. He's the third son. Uh, Solomon was the second son. The first son of Bathsheba died. God took that son, Remember? But then uh, you had Solomon, then you have Nathan. So even God knows how to work with the details and bring us to this amazing journey where he has both Joseph and Mary, both of the line of David, but through a different line, through different uh, sons and so on. And here they are then coming together. So God then can uh, you know, work through this thing of Mary, which in an amazing, amazing way, uh, which I think is fantastic. Joseph... Uh, is, is here. He has his purpose, but he's not the father of Jesus. If he had been the father of Jesus, by the way, Jesus would have been disqualified anyway from being king because of the curse. But also Jesus would have been disqualified from forgiving sin. He wouldn't have been God. If Jesus had been adopted by both Joseph and Mary, he would have been disqualified by having, not having been through the true line of David. That would have nullified that and still disqualified from being the Messiah. But Jesus was the son, the legitimate son of Mary. It's an amazing, now we all know this, but you pause and just remind yourself. The, Jew, the Jewish Talmud had referred to Mary as the daughter of Heli, uh, and so on, and, how, and it's just a, the amazing precision of God uh, in all these details that uh, you can't ignore these things, and when you see them, you just sit back and say, God is in such a spectacular way, all of these details, that he works and orchestrates for his own glory, and, and even for us sitting here today. This, uh, the fact that I think that these two were probably brought to mind about all this, I think is interesting, because it would have stirred their faith. When you're in a small town, 
obscure from anyone and suddenly God is speaking to you and your life is starting to change and then you look at all the circumstances around you because you need faith. What they're going to pull off is going to require a great deal of faith. And this rehearsing of their past and seeing God in the details, it enabled them to press ahead. It enabled them to somehow figure out, uh, you know, we can be joyful in this whole experience. God is somehow working here. And they would have recognized that. Uh, today, I, I, I don't know what you're going through. I know uh, in my own thoughts today, things in my own life, I just know that sometimes we need reminding of God in what we're doing. We need our circumstances encouraged. We need to be emboldened so that we can stand fast in our faith during times of testing and trial. I, I think that many of you know what I'm saying. And so God wants us to recommit our hearts to him and trust him. Now, I want to read something that's just for us this morning. I want to take you to a text you all know, but it's Romans chapter 8. And I want to read this to us in light of God in the details, starting at verse 28. We often read this. We don't necessarily always attach it to what's behind it. Today, whatever you're going through, just hear God's word as we go through this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Well, what then shall we say to these things? I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? If God is in the details, then this is absolutely true for you. If God's not in the details, then this story isn't true and it isn't even worth reading. They would have had discussions like this, I think, and this would have come out for them to understand God is working in our lives and we're just going to obey and go along and follow him. God sometimes 
as we know from this storm that we just uh, heard about and the horrendous things that have taken place, people's loss, it's hard for us, as I said earlier, to think God's in control when things like that happen to us. It, it's, it's a tough thing to do. I think too often we look at our lives and think that we're making the choices, we're making the decisions that we make and really don't know that God is doing this. I made this decision. And sometimes I want to say God allows us in his sovereignty, and I don't understand this, he allows us to make choices. Sometimes they're faulty choices, but God will often allow us to do that. He'll even allow you to reject his counsel today. Some are going to stand before God on judgment day, before Jesus, and say, Lord, we did this in your name. And he's going to say, I don't know you. They're going to think they were doing things in his will. But today, if you're truly led by the Spirit of God, then you are a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And if that's happening, then you should be able to look back on your life and see God's hand in your life somehow as you look back and assess your life. Just doing that, to me, would save a lot of your marriages. Looking back, seeing where God is, and then, you know, obviously, as you look back and say, was God in this, was God in this, or was it just me, was it... Uh, you know, what, did I not consult him? Or where am I at here? And so I think that's very important for you. Verse 6 and 7 of our text, it transitions to uh, a whole other scene. Now there were in the same country shepherds uh, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for, in, for there is born to you in the city of David a, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a scene. And again, God is in the details of this uh, tremendous scene. Uh, if you uh, realize again that we're just seeing here that God is in such control of all the circumstances. And so, uh, you know, this comment is made by the angel and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swathing cloths, lied, uh, laid him in a manger. And we read that, and there's so much written about this that it's not funny anymore because some of, the, some of the things written are ridiculous. Can I just say to you today that this is a normal story. This part of the story, a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths is not some, uh, you know, thing that we look at and try to find some deep inner spiritual truth about this. Swaddling cloths were normal. Being wrapped in swaddling cloths, the only thing that would be uh, unusual was that uh, they were special because they were usually handed down from generation to generation. It, was, it made them more special. And if you were from a wealthy home, the swaddling cloths you used would have been far nicer than someone who didn't have any money. The fact of a manger is important because that's how the shepherds are going to find this child mainly. And they're looking for a newborn, a brand newborn in swaddling cloths in a manger. So that becomes important. But... What the manger is made out of, who cares? I'm telling you, you can go on websites and find so-and-so, a Joseph had his tools and made a quick manger. No, he didn't. 
Uh, and if he did, it, no one cares. Uh, it might have been out of concrete. Some of the uh, uh, back in that first century, some of the uh, mangers were, con- or, were, were stone that was carved out, maybe six inches deep. Maybe it isn't important. But there's one thing that's important in that phrase that we need to focus on. And she brought forth her firstborn son. That's critically important. Way more important than swaddling cloths on a manger. And there aren't any carols about that, by the way. There are no Christmas carols about being firstborn. There ought to be. But we sing carols about the manger, you know, the swaddling cloths. But there's nothing about being firstborn. And that's the whole issue. Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. It's all wrapped up in this whole story that the, the, the whole idea that uh, this one had to break the curse of sin as he came. So he had to break the curse on Adam. And the only way he could do that was if he was born from a virgin. So she couldn't, he could not be born from a, a man's flesh. And so he was born from Mary. Uh, I'm sure she was a godly girl. But as I said uh, uh, weeks ago, she was still a sinner uh, who needed to be saved by grace like everyone else. But he was born without a human being, a a man, to uh, put that seed into Mary. And so the Holy Spirit did that. So Mary's giving birth to a a, a God and man person now. Uh, And so being firstborn is a critically important thing to understand. But it goes far even deeper than that. This one who's firstborn, I want you to just see, uh, 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 if you will, I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 just for a moment to understand this and how it's how critical this is for us to understand. This one who is firstborn, born outside the curse. This one who's firstborn must also be then what we're going to call first fruits of those who have died in Christ. So notice what it says in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Uh, so uh, Jesus is going to be the firstborn. That is the firstborn uh, in this new uh, uh, in, the, in this new uh, moment of time, uh, breaking the curse on man. So he's the firstborn of that, and then he's the first fruits, the first one who will die and then resurrect to give us all this beautiful uh, entry into this new uh, this new way of thinking, this new covenant that he's established for us. It's all part of this. Tremendous plot that we're looking at today. So the shepherds are are uh, hearing this statement that he's uh, the firstborn son, and they may not be thinking about the curse themselves, uh, but that's what that word means. Whether they are aware of this, we're not positive, but they do go away from this whole encounter with uh, uh, seems to be more understanding than many others. Verse eight comes along, says the the shepherds are then you know told this. And so then they want to go and see this thing, which has come to pass. So we we see that now these shepherds were uh, out in the field keeping watch. And behold, the angel comes and says what he says. And so uh, 
It says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I don't know if they're thinking if they would have had any ability to think about this, a Savior. Uh, this is the Messiah. This is the one that they're all waiting for. But yet, this curse on the line of David would have been an issue that no one was probably seeing. I think that maybe Joseph Mary might have seen this. But shepherds wouldn't have known that, really. They just hear that there's a sign, swaddling cloths, manger, and they go. Uh, but there's this explosion that takes place, of course. Heaven is... Uh, I've always loved this because in verse 13 and 14, you have this sudden appearance of more than one angel, this multitude of heavenly angels. And when we read verse 14, we don't do it justice. I, I, I can't. If I read it, it's just my voice. We're talking about a multitude of angels. Whether they, you know, someone would say they sang this, it doesn't say that. It just simply says that saying glory to God in the highest. I almost feel like the all of heaven had a rehearsal. It just it just seems like they must have had a rehearsal. The timing is is explosive. It's almost like all the angels were waiting for the the first angel to say his his spiel, and then you know as as he wraps it up, and then there's this explosion of of heaven sort of shouting this out. Uh, but here again, this is God. Uh, who's orchestrating all of this event, and all these angels are excited about this event and so on. And you know what? You and I have not had this. I, I can't tell you that I've ever had an angel speak to me, and I've never had heaven shout out to me like this. So it's unique, and it's God in the moment. So when you're going through a hard time, when you're in circumstances that you don't have control of, don't be looking for heaven to be shouting or some neon sign that... Uh, you can know that God's there. God doesn't do that with us. He arrives. Uh, he's with us always, but his presence is made known to us when we simply submit and say, Lord, I, I'm in trouble and I need you. I can't imagine Christians hearing a tornado coming down on them at night didn't all bow and just commit their lives to Christ. Some were taken, I'm sure, in that tornado. Certainly believers were, but they went right to heaven. But obviously, this is what we do. I've been to a hospital bed, been by somebody who's dying, and you want to bring a word of encouragement to somebody who's dying. And when you walk up to uh, somebody in the room and you step up to their bedside and you have the knowledge of Christ in your heart and you have words that you can say, sometimes words just aren't sufficient. Uh, sometimes our countenance can can sort of send a message that this isn't good. Sometimes it's hard to mask that. But what people need in the moment of their, of their fear and of their concerns and their worries is a firm, uh, comforting truth that Jesus Christ knows and he's with them and he understands and he cares and that you, as you read the word, and as you pray with someone, you pray in a faith that the greatest blessing that every Christian has is to know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That, that should be our greatest blessing, to know that. 
But even still here, as this story is unfolding, the angels are excited because of what's going to happen. They're excited because these shepherds are experiencing for the first time this uh, firstborn having broken the curse who's come into to life. And they're going to be the first ones to witness this. And the angels are thrilled. As someone said, why shepherds? I don't have a good answer. There's speculation. Uh, someone said that these shepherds are... Uh, perhaps watching sheep that, that are uh, being cared for, uh, preparing for sacrifice, sacrificial sheep. Maybe it doesn't tell us that. But if they were, we would know, and I said last week, we would know this, that shepherds were looked down on. They took care of the sheep that people bought for sacrifice, but they themselves were often not allowed to take their own sheep to sacrifice. They were considered filthy uh, they were uh, on the same rank as tax collectors. Uh, they were just one rank above a leper. Uh, so oftentimes they didn't have the privilege and blessing of knowing that their own sins were forgiven because they weren't allowed to do that oftentimes. And yet God comes to the lowly and shows himself to the lowly first. God comes to those who have nothing and he exposes them to his glory before anyone else. And that's the beauty of this story. Jesus made it, said it this way. Uh, he said in Luke 9, 48, he who is, for he who is least among you all will be great. And today, if you feel like you're low on the totem pulse in our society and what's going on in your own life, I just want you to know Jesus Christ loves you with all that he has to give you. And he wants to be your savior. So this story wraps up with verse 15. So the angels are gone now. The shepherds are uh, saying, let's go see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, now this is very interesting. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. When we read that phrase, we realize that Mary's still learning about this story herself. She's still putting uh, all the pieces together. She knows who she's been called to be. She knows she's given birth. She's going to give birth to the Son of God, and she has now. She knows that, but she just doesn't know all these pieces. And so here as these shepherds are stating things and sharing things and, and all these events are taking place. She's just marking these things down and tucking them away that one day she'll be telling Luke all the things that she knows about this story as she does this. And he's recounting what she's already told him. Verse 19 says, but, or verse 20 says, then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. God's in the details. Uh, if I say this, I, I mean this with all my heart. When you come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus believing in who he claims to be, uh, believing that he's the son of God, believing that he's uh, fully aware of everything about your life, uh, believing that he's he cares for you, believing that he's, he has answers he wants to share with you. He certainly is the, the way, the truth, and the life, and he wants that in your life. When you come believing that as you sort of sense that, 
You cannot leave his presence the same. You can't. If you truly believe in who he says he is. And in this story, as we just sort of wrap things up today, the the Christmas story, every year we go through it. But the reason for this story is for you and I to see the details and say he's so there. But that would mean that he's so here now. If he's not here now in your life and in your details, then I'm not sure that this story is, has much meaning for you. But Jesus Christ isn't just for the past. He's not just in a great story. He's present right now in your life, and he cares about you. I, uh, I praise him for that. As I get older and more senile, it's happening. As I get older, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose the sense of his ever presence in my life, his working in the details of my life, and he does care. I want my grandkids to love Jesus Christ more than anything. I want my family to treasure him more than anything. I want you to love him more than anything because he's worthy of that. And he's the only one that can change your life. This whole story is just so full of, of amazing truths. And uh, he is here for you today. And he wants to come into your life. And so we leave here today, Christian, we leave here today encouraged by the fact that Jesus is in all the details and he's working in my life. I know he is. And whatever you're going through, you can say he's working and in all things work together for good to those who are the called, uh, who love the Lord Jesus. He's working in your life. But he's also working because he wants someone near you, in your life, in your home, in your family, at work, to know who he is. And he wants you to be like a shepherd to say, it's amazing. It's amazing. I've seen him. I know him. I walk with him. And he's amazing. And that simple testimony may just be what opens the door for somebody to say, well, if you found something that amazing, that's what I want. Because there's nothing much else amazing in this world right now but Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for our team that got back safely. Uh, Thank you for their hands and their heart and their message. Lord, I pray that all of us would uh, approach uh, the end of the year and going into the next year as you allow us in your grace Lord, give us the ability to be life changers for others. May we speak words of truth. May our lives be so so breathtakingly into what you've done to see all the ways that you work in in the lives of the story of your birth to the, the details of your soon return. And that we're in that story. We're active members of your story. Lord, work through us, work in us. May we, uh, may we be anticipating the glory of your return while we're also uh, praying with passion for those who don't know you. The days are closing in. Life is changing quickly. And we realize that that gracious commodity called time is running out. The Lord help us to be faithful in these days, keeping our eyes on you, and keeping our lips speaking truths and praising the name of Jesus Christ. We give you all honor and praise today. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the blessing of your coming for us. 
I thank you so much more, Lord, that you're returning for us very soon. We give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name.